I remember when I was getting my my license, my driver's instructor, her name was Sandy. Sandy was a, a, a serious chain smoker, so her, her voice was like this. And Sandy used to always say to me, you know, there's a lot of bad drivers out there. She smoked while she was teaching me to drive. And she'd be like, you don't mind if I smoke, do you? And I was like, hey, I just want to get my license, lady. You can, you can smoke all you want. She did. And um, Sandy would say, there's a lot of bad drivers out there. They, they only, they don't look past their hood ornament, she used to always say. They don't look past their hood ornament. And uh, our hood ornaments today are basically embedded in the hoods of our car, but if you had old cars, like from the 80s and earlier, the hood ornament actually stood, stood up because your hood was 19 feet long. We had an old 1986 Caprice Classic station wagon. It was the best 22 tons of metal that ever came out of Detroit. And this thing was massive. It's a turn it. It was like a big boat in the front end of the car would go into the fog to turn it was like oh it was huge and I say this because I say this because that hood ornament she's like you know you have to look past that um, I know it's tempting to stare at it because it's right in front of you but you got to look past it. you got to look past it she used to say and we're about to head into Paul's letter to the Philippians which is this huge call to rejoice It's like a clarion call to constantly rejoice. But the thing about suffering and frustration and hard times and hardships is that they they make you nearsighted with the way you go through life and you kind of stare at the hood ornament. And you can't see past it. And the only thing you can see is the pain, the hurt, the frustration, the sorrow, the tragedy, right in front of you. It's all you can see. And... uh, it makes us nearsighted. And Sandy was always on these nearsighted drivers that can only see what's right in front of them. They can't see anything else. Suffering does that to us. Suffering has a way of making us nearsighted. And um, so as we turn this morning to Philippians, I'm going to read from chapter 1, the first 11 verses. And over the next number of weeks, we're going to unpack this whole letter, this clarion call to rejoice in the gospel and all of its benefits. 20 times... Through this letter, Paul uses the word joy or phrases about joy, and uh, he's calling them back to this. He's extremely well-educated, so Paul doesn't have a lack of vocabulary when he's writing. And he's like, I'm just going to keep on using this word joy because I can't think of another. This is very intentional. Um, He's using this word joy like a one-stringed guitar. And what's ironic about it, just before we go to this text here, I want to just give you some context for this letter What's ironic about Paul's constant calls for Philippi to rejoice is that they really don't have many reasons to rejoice whatsoever, and neither does Paul. He's actually writing it from prison, for starters. So Roman prisons weren't a picnic. So this is the context. He's constantly um, going on about joy. So he writes, to, he writes to Philippi, and so the recipients of this letter are in this city called Philippi, which was a military colony. So there's all these retired Roman soldiers living there. So it's a very nationalistic city. And so the church is really being oppressed and oppression is rising in a big way because they're going around saying Jesus is Lord. And as far as the Philippians are concerned, Nero is Lord. So that's a problem. And so the the social outcast thing is rising. The oppression is rising. It's getting more and more difficult to go to work. It's getting more and more difficult to hang out at the parties on weekend. Because in the ancient world, everything was connected to to the gods and in this case emperor worship so you didn't just go and have a barbecue it was a barbecue to the gods 
You didn't just go to your neighbors and, had a, and, and have some drinks. You were drinking to the emperor, to the gods. Everything was to the gods. And so now the Christians are like, we're kind of displaced because this, we don't really fit into this society anymore because we're not worshiping these gods. And they don't seem to have any real reason to rejoice because the situation with Rome under Nero is kind of coming to a boiling point. And then as you track through the letter, it gets worse because you realize that there's some disunity in the church. There's rivalry in the church. Um, there's problems in the church. And uh, the leader, the guy who delivered this letter, uh, his name was Epaphroditus, and everybody loved him. And he, was, he almost died twice because he's so sick, the guy that delivered this letter. So here Paul is going on about rejoicing. But really, if you unpack the whole letter, which we will over the next couple of weeks, you're like, wow, this is pretty hard not to just stare at the hood ornament and be like, life sucks, so let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It'd be pretty hard not to just think that way. But then we get Philippians where Paul is calling the church to a joy that transcends all of these circumstances. Philippians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all of my remembrance for you always in every prayer of mine for you and uh, making, prayer with, making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you all in my heart for you are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. So Paul sends this letter in around 61, 62 AD. Nero is in power. It's actually towards the end of Paul's life. So Philippians has this really reflective tone. And it turns out that Paul is martyred in Rome three, uh, three years after he writes this letter. So it's towards the end of his life. And the letter doesn't just have one single idea. It's a bunch of like these reflective thoughts. Like these 11 verses that I'm going to kind of dial into in a second. The whole letter is kind of revolving around this really epic poem about Christ. It's in chapter 2, and we're going to get to it later. But it's this epic poem kind of in the middle of the letter about Christ's incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the implications of that. So everything else Paul says is kind of funneling into that central piece about Jesus, including the beginning here, which isn't just a, hey, how you doing, guys, which I'll show you in a second. And uh, so one of the recurring things through this letter as I mentioned, is joy. And another one, which he kind of got into there at the, the last few verses that I'm going to unpack, is this life that we're supposed to be living as Christians. That for Paul, is like this expression. It's like Jesus living vicariously through us. It's like our imitation of Christ. Paul has this kind of constant idea, this constant call to the Philippian church, which we'll see, about kind of picking up Christ's love and grace, his ethic, his social conscience about justice and mercy, the downtrodden, the outcast. Really, the implications of what grace does is it flows out of us. 
But Paul doesn't start there. He starts with um, this call to this uh, to to recognizing and resting in the grace of Christ and the joy that comes as a result of that. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. Our activity flows from our sense of identity. And he who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. So in these first 11 verses, Paul kind of presents what the gospel is for you, and then he also presents the power of God's grace that's working in you. And if you look at verse 1, we're immediately introduced to this tone of grace, because Paul calls himself a servant, and that's a far cry from how he used to see himself. So immediately, there's this, uh, there's this, there's this, thing that should shock us and cause us to stop because he was an arrogant self-righteous persecutor of the church the paul's self-view and you can read about it in other letters he's like hey if anybody had a reason to brag it'd be this guy right here and he gives a big laundry list of his his you know uh, academic accomplishments right and that guy refers to himself as a servant this great work of grace this humbling thing that's taken place um, in Paul. It's that Jesus, we know, came to Paul on that Damascus road. That was a gracious interruption in Paul's life that Paul wasn't looking for and didn't know that he needed. So he's been humbled now. And as a recipient of this radical grace, he now sees himself as a servant of this grace. Jesus was my savior. What possible response do I have except to relate to him as Lord? And so this is the tone right from verse 1. Paul calls himself a servant, and then he addresses this church as saints, which is an interesting choice of words, because as you read through the letter and the things he's calling them to do, it's very clear they're, they're not saints uh, 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 in and of their own nature. They're not, because they're dealing with a whole lot of things, but he addresses them as saints, calls himself a servant, and he calls them saints, which could also be translated holy ones. Now, we know God is holy, and the definition of holy is perfection. So if you're bold enough to say, yes, I am perfection personified, then you probably have problems. And, but Paul calls them, Paul calls them perfection. That's what he calls them. He says, to the saints in Philippi. And um, so he's relating to them according to their adopted name, really. And, he, and, he, and he's speaking to them according to their new identity. One time, uh, Susan and I were standing with some friends. I think she's shared the story before. Susan's maiden name is Martin. And we had a friend named Martin. And we were standing in a group. And uh, one of our other friends came over. And just to make a joke, he acknowledged Susan and Martin. And he goes, Susan, Martin. Like waiting for her to be like, hey, you know. And uh, Susan didn't react. And so he tried again. Susan, Martin. No, still nothing. No, no, you know, right? And and it was about three times, and she's like, "Oh my goodness, I just finally caught what you're doing," because I've been called Susan Dunk, you know, for 20 years or however long it had, you know, it had been a long time. And so it'd been a long time since she'd been called Susan Martin. She didn't even respond to it. That she's been living in, so to speak, a new identity. And so Paul is now speaking to the church according to a new identity. And that's what that's how he's addressing them as these saints. As the letter unfolds, he's calling us to imitate Christ. Not because living the lives of love and sacrifice is what makes us holy, but because living a life of love and sacrifice describes those who Christ made holy. And there's a world of difference there. He's speaking to identity. And so maybe you're new to the scriptures or you're new to church, and you're thinking to yourself, see, this is precisely why I I choke on Christianity, because they call themselves saints, or they refer to themselves as saints or holy, and I know Christians, and they seem to be hypocrites. 
I know Christians who, when I listen to them talk, they're like a black hole of relational gossip and backbiting. And, and, and I listen to the way they pick apart this person or that person, and, and so they're total hypocrites. Or I'm in business with this guy or this woman, and they claim to be a Christian, and they have no integrity. And, and, uh, and you know, the whole idea of, well, do business with this person, because after all, they're a Christian. And your response to that is, no, thank you, please. You know, that, that doesn't mean anything to me to say, oh, you're in business and you're a Christian, well, we should do business together. Because I've had too many experiences with people with no integrity, right? That's the, if, if you're choking on that, the hypocrisy, and, the, and this seems to smack you to say, yeah, see, exactly, these Christians aren't, aren't holy, but God's calling them holy, and what's going on here? Well, let me clear this up for you. God calls us saints, not because in and of our own nature we are, but because in the gospel, through life, Christ's perfect life, his atoning death, and his resurrection, we're his. So he calls us holy because we're his. Not because in and of our nature we actually are, but that's our new identity, and that new identity actually brings with it a, a constant, lifelong, reforming trajectory. And God is in the business of calling things as they are from the beginning before they're even manifest. That's the way the whole Bible kind of works, is even if you get to the end of the book, spoiler alert, you read Revelation and you find out how it all works. The book of Revelation, the reason it's so confusing for us to read is because it's not linear. At the beginning of it, it's like, and then and Christ, you know, the Lamb of God was slain before the foundations of the world. The timelines are all crazy. It's like trying to follow the Terminator franchise. What is happening right now? I thought that just happened, but I'm looking at it. Yeah, exactly. That's apocalyptic literature. And so God has always been in the business of calling things that are not yet as though they are, and calling us saints is one of those things. And we're all, of course, in this journey of reform, but God calls us that on the basis of our rescue. And so, the Christians that you meet, who have done all of these things that you say make them total hypocrites, and, and that could be a, a very accurate and well-deserved criticism, we're all in varying degrees of reform. So, those who are... Uh, mature in Christ are really, really desiring to actually be a loving and gracious, you know, knowledgeable, discerning, pure and blameless person like that text just says. I mean, that's really what we want. We still fail at it, but that's really what we want. And those who are very immature in Christ have really very little regard for that. They're still just kind of fascinated by this idea of rescue, that all of their sin is forgiven. And so they kind of in the beginning, lots of immature believers have this idea like, well, my sins are forgiven and grace is like peanut butter and God just spreads it all over there anyway, so I can kind of do whatever I want. It's all going to work out in the wash and be okay in the end. And so, and so they then, out of that immaturity, um, live kind of with a real disregard for Christ's lordship because they're mesmerized by his, uh, by, by his, sa his saving rescue. So that, if that's helpful for you, uh, for those of you who choke on this idea that Christians could be called holy even though we're not, it's on the basis that we are his. And so Paul goes on from this and, um, and he uses these words grace and peace, which is like a, not just like, hey, grace and peace, that's how I start all my greeting cards. No, that's not, it's that Paul's not just being glib about it. Grace and peace is both what the gospel is for you and it's what the gospel gives to you. So Paul, most of his letters start grace and peace. And then the letter goes on to unpack that. 
well, what is this grace? And what is that peace? And what are those gifts? And how do they benefit me today in a life of suffering? That grace being that unmerited favor that came toward you, though you didn't deserve it, covering all your sin. That grace being something working in you, doing that renewing, you know, kind of retuning you, like a guitar that constantly needs retuning. No Christian wakes up like an electronic keyboard that needs no retuning. That's a very poor idea of sanctification. Sanctification is like a guitar. You wake up every day out of tune, every single day. All of you guitar players know. You pick that thing up, you go to play it. What's the first thing you do? You spend five minutes tuning it, right? Because it's not in tune. It can't stay in tune. You and I can't stay in tune. So Paul starts the letter, grace and peace, because grace is not only what rescues you, but it's a constant process of retuning. And this peace is now that you have peace with God, and now through the suffering, which all of the church has experienced, and you experienced, that peace is something you can enjoy in the midst of trial, and Paul is kind of drawing the church back to that. Those two things are what the gospel is and what the gospel gives. And so when you get to verse 5, he's so excited about all of this, he starts to very, very warmly speak to them about their partnership. He talks about the Philippians being partners and... And, uh, and he's really warm about it. And, the, and in the Greek, that word partnership, so all of us here at the church today at KW Redeemer, we're partners together in the gospel. What does that mean? It's this range of meaning. We're sharing our life. There's that component of fellowship and camaraderie. But it also means that there's, a, there's also a financial sharing. Right? We, we receive benevolence offerings here at the church. We give generously with our finances. And when those in our membership here fall in hard times, we help them out financially, practically. We don't just pat them on the back and say, be warmed and filled. And, I, and after all, celebrate that you're justified. You know? I know you can't pay your bills. and too, Sorry about that, but you're justified. No. It's a very real, tangible, on-the-ground love and care. And so Paul starts to speak very warmly about that partnership. And it actually teaches us uh, some important things. Because the generosity of the church, and the reason Paul's thanking them is because he wrote this because Epaphroditus showed up and gave him food and money and, 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 uh, to take care of Paul. The church sent it to take care of Paul while he's in prison. So Paul's response is this letter. But that teaches us something about gospel generosity. It was always gospel-driven. It was mercy-driven. It was compassion-driven. It was never rewards-driven. And that's why in the 16th century, when the church got on these weird ideas about indulgences, and the 21st century, when the church got on these weird ideas like the prosperity theology, both of those things have received uh, proper and appropriate scathing criticism as being heretical and false because they've taken the, genero- the generosity of the gospel of the church that Paul is commending that's supposed to be driven for gospel, mercy, and compassion, and they made it about reward in both of those cases. And so it teaches, this, that partnership thing teaches us something about why the church is the way that it is. And further to that, it also teaches us that our Christian faith is something that is enjoyed, expressed, walked out in community. That we can't be individual spiritualists. That that's not a proper picture of Christian faith. You can listen online by yourself to teachers that are going to be in, infinitely greater than I'm going to be on a Sunday morning. But if you do that in isolation, you're, you, can, you can grow academically. But if you have no real connection or love or care or concern for the people in the seats around you, the gospel can't work its way out functionally. And that's where the reform and the, and the, and the transformation comes from. So when Paul is commending this great partnership of the church, it teaches us about the form 
that God has always used to work out those things in our hearts. Because those people that are sitting around you that you're partners with, one of, th- one of the interesting things is not all of them are your best friends. Not all of them will ever be your best friends. The, that's not the point of community. In fact, some of the people that are sitting around you grade, around you, grade on you the wrong way. You would never actually pick the people that are sitting around you as close friends to go and have coffee with and hang out and have a good time with. That's not true, that's not true of, in all relational contexts in this room, but it's true of some of them. And you want to know something? All of those things are gifts. Because what they do is they show us our own hearts. It's like holding up a mirror. It's like when you're walking towards that person and, and, you, and they're going to say, hey, how are you doing? And you're just like, oh, they grade on me the wrong way. It's like it just shows up a mirror and it goes, hey, here's a black unevangelized part of your heart where you've built up this huge, massive, idolatrous wall called comfort and you don't want anybody who's not like you to go in there. How about talking to this person for five minutes? When Paul speaks warmly about the partnership and the love of the church, they were just as messed up and dysfunctional in their own ways as all, as all of us are. Make no mistake about it. Some people are so romantic about the early church. Oh, to be like the early church. We are like the early church. Relax. The Holy Spirit is doing his renewing and beautiful work in all of us in the same way that he was doing it back then. And we're a gift to one another. Because of course we love and care. We truly do. And of course, in and amongst us, just like every family, there's family members that we've got this deep affinity with and others that we don't for whatever reason. And it's all a gift. And you can't uh, enjoy the gift of its depth and its richness and isolation. So the church has always been this community where God has always been bringing them, uh, bringing us together. And so from this picture of, of partnership, Paul moves into this very familiar statement. For some of you, it's very familiar. Uh, for, the, for others of you, it might be new. And it's the statement that says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. This beginning and completing. Now, for those of you who know that that term is familiar, the challenge with familiarity is you lose your sense of something so familiar to you, you lose your sense of wonder or curiosity. And it's like those of you who've been married for a long time, if you're married for, Susan and I are going to celebrate in May, 22 years. Well, when we were married for 22 days, there was a lot of novelty. And after 22 years, there's really no novelty. But after 22 years, there's a deep richness, though. And after 22 days, there there wasn't the depth of richness that there is after 22 years because after having somebody see your your, dark, uh, gross sin and all of your failure and love you anyways and be committed to you and care for you, that creates a richness and a depth that's not novel. And so when you come to texts like this, you began the good work and you will complete it. And it's very familiar. It's easy for us to just bypass it because it isn't novel. But it is rich. And it never ceases to be rich. And that's true of all of God's words. So let's unpack this for a moment. Um, when he says that he who began the good work in you will complete it, it teaches you that The Christian life doesn't begin with God's action and is then sustained and completed by your action. The cross isn't like Kickstarter. This is telling us that front to back, the Christian life is all grace. What does that mean? Does that mean we're just observers? No, we're not observers of 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 the life that Paul's calling the church to, of love and discernment and knowledge and proving what's excellent and uh, purity and blamelessness, those things you see 
through verses 7 and 11 in front of you there. All that stuff. We're not just observers in that. We can't just observe that all. I'll sit back and God will produce those things in me. But at the same time, we're also not driving it. We can't, how do you transform yourself? I'd love to know. I'm going to get to that in a second. You, 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 we're not observing it, but we're also not driving it. But yet we're, this, we're these gracious participants in something that God is doing, something that God is completing. And so, um, and so when Paul prays this prayer through verses 7 to 11, that the church would increase in love and knowledge and discernment, prove what is excellent, be pure and blameless, he's not simply giving them a list of activity. He's actually calling them to be consistent with their new identity. That's why he starts this whole thing the way he does, grace and peace and saints. And now I'm going to give you this list of things that this is actually consistent with who you truly are. And you can look at that list and go, that's a pretty tall order. I'm not sure if I, that I look in the mirror and see myself as a loving, knowledgeable, discerning, pure, blameless person. Right? Who in us would stand in that line? And yet, we, and yet, though, we have these moments when we are those things because God is doing this beautiful renewal. We say, yeah, I have moments. We have moments when we are. We are and then we, and then we aren't. But he's calling us into this congruency. He's calling us into uh, a true a sense of true identity. We read that list, and we can fall into a, a self-righteous ditch to go, yeah, that describes me. I'm totally those things, which is self-righteousness. Or we can go into a lawless ditch that says, I'll never be those things. I'm thankful that Jesus was all of those things. So that gets me off the hook of endeavoring to desire any of those things, both of those kind of ditches, because we're a bit of a paradox, right? All of us have had those moments going to church where, you know, in our soul, we flip from... In Christ alone, my hope is... I will pull this car over, and I will throw you little demons into a snowbank. What has a love, what a... We've, all of us, have done it. All of you kids who are in here who are like, Yeah, my parents have done it. You're going to do it too, guys. You just Wait. One day you're going to go, oh no, my parents fell out of my mouth. Okay? Um, and so we can look at these lists that Paul gives, but I don't want us to understand them as lists of activity. I want them to understand that, yeah, that's activity, but it's actually a call into the trueness of my real identity. That that's actually who God is, in the day of Christ Jesus, going to make complete, until then, not complete, but desiring it deeply and richly and wanting to orient ourselves towards that. So everywhere that God's word instructs you and guides you, it is simultaneously saying, this is the real you. This is actually the real you. Began and completes implies that God's rescuing grace for you has a reforming trajectory in you. So that when your ear hears the guidance of God's law, your heart increasingly says, that's what I want. That's the work of grace, and it's ongoing, of course. When you think about a child, and if you've corrected a child, a child acts out, and you say to a child, you sit the child down, and you say, hey, buddy, you know, hey, sweetie, what's, what's going on? That's not you. How many of you have ever said that in a parenting or a coaching moment, right? Hey, what's going on? That's not you, right? What do we mean when we say that? Because what we mean is, we don't want to just say, hey, stop doing that, start doing that. There, behavior management achieved. Everybody's happy. Whenever we sit a child down and go, hey, that's not you, what we're, what we're really saying is, I know you, and I know as your parent, 
you're capable of things, and this is not consistent with all of who I know you to be and with what you're capable of. That's why we kind of use that kind of language. When, when Paul is calling us to these, this, this list of love, knowledge, discernment, approving what is excellent, purity, blamelessness, that we say, well, that's stratospheric. It's like God Almighty is putting his arm around us and saying, hey, buddy, when we sin, that's not you. That's not you. That used to be you. That used to be the most natural thing to do. But because of the grace of Christ, his perfect sacrifice that has eradicated the guilt of your sin, that's not you. So now let me call you into this life of slowly, incrementally releasing you from the grip of sin. Justification, the one-time act. Sanctification, the ongoing work. Justification, guilt is gone. Sanctification, grip is releasing over time. So it's an encouragement. And this is why, this is why Paul gives us this. And so the, um, God's grace is what engenders the desire for the guidance of his law. And so that's why he starts this whole letter with the term saints, holy ones. He's drawing their attention back to this undeserved grace. You don't make yourself holy. God's grace for you in Christ declares that you're holy. You're holy because you're with him. Now, the Greco-Roman world that Paul's writing to they were all well-saturated with teachings on virtue and vice, right? 400 years before Paul wrote this, Plato was writing all about virtue and vice. And so, logically, you would aspire to do more virtues and stay away from your vices, and you would logically be a more person. That was Platonic education. Plato divided the soul into kind of three components. This is how he kind of talked about it. This is how that church would have understood it. They've got the, the soul was divided into, you know, the head, the spirit, and the appetite. The noetic, the thinking part, the spirited part, the will part, and the appetitive part, right? What your soul is craving after. That's kind of how Plato talked about it. So everybody would have kind of had that way of thinking about it. And so Plato used to, used to always assert, the strongest part of your soul is not the mind. Don't think that the, the Greeks all were like, look, it's not the noetic. They're chasing, after the, they're chasing after the intellect. But he's like, you're not going to transform yourself by changing the input, right? Well, all we have to do is if we could just get the right information in there, we'd all live out of it and walk out of it. And no, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. None of us would. So they all kind of had that idea. So it, Paul's prayer here isn't just like, hey, I'm going to regurgitate Plato, and I'm going to call the church into transformation, you know, and I'm going to give them this laundry list of virtues that they could pursue. And I mean, you know, that's kind of what Plato's been saying. So I'm just going to throw the words grace in there and basically get the church to do what Plato's up to. No, that's not what's going on here at all. I'll, I'll unpack it and I'll, I'll show, it for you, show it to you. Because in a stark contrast to self-salvation of doing virtuous things in order to be virtuous or doing holy things in order to be holy... The scriptures invite you into humility by announcing already that you're holy. The whole ancient world was like, you're on your way to being completed. The gospel is, in Christ, completed. Done. Now, therefore, you're moving towards these things and living to, to, uh, to do these things, not on the basis of simply saving yourself, the scriptures are making us humble by saying a soul level of transformation is beyond you. So that drives us to prayer. Because Paul says, he who began 
complete. So where do you and I go then when we stare in the mirror and say, well, that was a glorious failure? There's only one place we can go, to the one who began. It's, it's, it's humbling. So that it draws us back into this place. The passage isn't commanding us to transform our own cravings. It's impossible. It's a gracious announcement that God is in the business of transforming your taste buds. He who began, completes. So now we endeavor to be loving and wise and knowledgeable and discerning and pure and blameless. We endeavor to do those things and live to the glory of God's grace and allow God's law to guide us. But our thinking is not that in our doing, we are doing it. The Christ has done it, and this is simply nothing more than living congruent with our new identity. This week I'm going to go for uh, sushi with some friends. I'm not going to eat the sushi, though, because I don't like it. My problem is my taste buds are like they have like the expanse of a, te- of a 10-year-old child. That's my problem. And so, <laughs> you know, I have, all of the, I have all of the range of a pub menu. Okay? And so much to the chagrin of my foodie wife, who loves to exp- explore and experiment and try new things, and she's dynamic, and I'm just kind of like, hey, wow, you know, I, I, food is fuel. Same thing every day, no problem. Put it in and keep on going. It's terrible. Listen, as we unpack this letter over the next couple weeks, we're going to discover that Paul is calling the church to imitate Christ. He's calling you and I to imitate Christ. Not because... The Christian life is being handed a new menu, like being handed a sushi menu, and you're like, I don't actually like anything on here, but I'm supposed to like do this now? That's not the Christian life. It's not being handed virtues and saying, I know nothing in you wants to do this, but you're a Christian, so P.S., here's the Bible, follow it. That is not the picture of Christian faith. By Paul saying, he who began completes, you're not being handed a new menu. God is renewing your taste buds changing your tastes, recalibrating your loves, reorienting your heart, so that increasingly and over time, we want what he wants, we desire what he desires. We're living in congruence with our new reality by God's grace. He's making it, he's making it a reality. And of course, we all do this imperfectly because we're sinners. Of course we do. But we desire to live this way increasingly because by his grace, God calls us sinners, saints. So we desire it. Our activity flows from our sense of identity. And he who began the good work and you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.